Husky football podcast on the entire internet and the official podcast of the Cody Pickett fan club. And we are back in spite of nothing happening in the entire world related to sports, but we're here to talk about that. Nothing nonetheless with tonight, Gaby Lucas, Gaby, how is your quarantined evening? Hi, it's going good. Question mark. I never know what to say because every day is pretty much the same. So you don't know. I don't even remember what good or bad means anymore. I'm just like, it is. Yeah. Yep, there's no good or bad anymore. There's only um, time continuing to pass. <laughs> and, yeah, uh, so let's uh, – there's been some football news, which was the impetus for us deciding to record this podcast, the most meaningful of which was the Huskies have a new quarterback, uh, which is interesting. They had a graduate transfer named Kevin Thompson from Sacramento State, the Hornets, the fighting Hornets, Uh Talk to me a little bit about your initial impressions of Kevin Thompson, and then we'll talk uh, more about how he impacts the race for the starting quarterback job in a minute. But just Thompson in a vacuum, what are your uh, first thoughts having seen some tape on him? Yeah, so the first when he first committed, it, I feel like my my emotional reaction has been such a roller coaster. I mean, like a relatively uh, subdued roller coaster, but one nonetheless. Where at first, I like, you see the woof, you get really excited, and I'm like, oh yeah, we got like, you know, even if it's, you know, it's some recruit that's here for the long term. And then you see the transfer quarterback, and you're like, well, shit, that means nothing. Because it's, uh, you know, and then, and then like a, maybe a few hours or a day later, I'm like, okay, I'm actually gonna look into why my reaction is what it is and what I should actually be feeling. And so then I'm like, I, once you, you know, learn more about who he is and what, you know, how he, what he did at Sacramento State, I felt like, okay, this is actually something that does provide some value, whether or not he is the starting quarterback, ends up the quarterback. Um, and so I think where I am now is, is it doesn't really affect the ceiling for this team because the highest ceiling for this team still exists, presumably with Jacob Sermon starting. Um, because if he does, if Jacob Sermon wins the job, that means that he's got his intangibles, which were always the question, um, his accuracy and decision-making, you know, that he's improved that to the point where he's better than all those. And he has the arm talent and blah, blah, blah. We all know this. I don't need to elaborate on it anymore. Um, so it doesn't change the ceiling because if he wins, he wins the end. Um, but I think it makes it makes the potential worst-case scenario for the quarterback room much better. Um, you know, you know – you know that there's at least something to work with. You know, if, if Dylan Morris and Sermon weren't ready, then at least you have an FCS quarterback who was an All-American, who was, I think, third place in the Walter Payton Trophy of voting. Um, so even though he's not perfect, he was playing a lower level of competition, it's not a sexy pickup, and he isn't, like, this insane physical specimen. Uh, you know, at least you know there's something to work with where 
it's not if if none of the three guys who are otherwise on the roster and who are all quite young, if none of them pan out, at least you know there's something, you know. Yeah, and I think the other way in which he helps the elevate the downside for the quarterback room is if either Sermon or Dylan Morris wins the job outright in the fall and the other decides to transfer, you yeah. have something other than a true freshman sitting on the bench. And it's great to have Garbers on the bench. I think, you know, it's, it's entirely possible that the depth chart goes Sermon, Garbers, Thompson, or Morris, Garbers, Thompson in that order. But in either of those cases, at least you've got something there that isn't just a preferred walk-on who had no real opportunity to play at a Division One level, let alone a Power yeah. 5 level. Yeah, uh, uh, So, yeah, I mean, th- and those guys can get into games. Like, we haven't seen it a lot the last couple years. Uh, we've been lucky in the sense that our, our quarterbacks have been pretty durable for the most part and haven't ended up in the, you know, horrible nightmare scenario of being down to the third or fourth guy on the depth chart. But that's, I mean, that's how Keaton Slovis got his job at USC. It happens. It's realistic. Uh, Was there anything from watching the tape about Thompson that stood out to you about his skills? Like you you mentioned, he put up good numbers at Sacramento State. They've traditionally not been a very good team. They're now coached by uh, Troy Taylor, which is interesting. He was the coach who uh, followed Jake Browning all the way through the, the school system in Folsom, California, parlayed that into an OC job at Eastern Washington, then at Utah, and now head coaching job at Sacramento State, so it all comes full circle. And even though Kevin Thompson isn't named Jake per se, um, I haven't <laughs> been able to find his middle name yet, despite some vigorous Googling. Uh, but he's he does have a connection to a, a very uh, profound and important Jake in Husky program history. That's besides the point. But when you watch... Kevin Thompson on film, was there anything that jumped out to you about his style of play? Yeah, he kind of reminds me of um, he kind of reminds me of a more mobile version of Anthony Gordon. Um, a little bit more mobile and I guess they're I think they're roughly similar sizes. I think Anthony Gordon was, I think he was about 6'2", low 200s. Um, in that he's kind of, uh, what's the word, kind of um, not feisty, that's such a dorky little term, but he's kind of a little bit, has a little bit of a sensibility. Sinewy, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll throw it, uh, well, he looks to me like he can throw from a handful of decent angles. The thing that where he looks like Anthony Gordon that I don't like is there's times where he looks, where he, he, he'll stand fat, flat-footed in the pocket and won't, you know, won't be moving his feet. Um, the thing is, I feel he, and this is, I should, preface this with this is on a very small sample size but he is mobile enough because he's you know he had 12 rushing touchdowns um, he's mobile enough where he can get away with that but that does kind of that's something that I I, I notice a lot in some quarterbacks kind of at like mid-level or FCS like group of five or FCS quarterbacks um, they I've noticed that sometimes they do that where they just kind of stand there in the pocket and have no foot movement whatsoever until they have to. Um, so I think that's kind of interesting in a probably not a great way. Um, I think the mobility is really interesting. And I think he's a, from what it looked like to me, he has a fine arm. Um, and for the most part is, I think his relatively lowish, I think 58% completion percentage. Um, a lot of it, I, what I, I noticed a lot of drops. Um, I also noticed that there were, there were a few throws that I've seen um, 
based off of my small sample size of what I've watched, um, where it wasn't thrown to the perfect shoulder, you know? So I think he doesn't necessarily, he, he will hit his guys and not necessarily be, um, every single time a, consistently precise. Um, and so that, you know, that can sometimes, that can be the difference between getting the ball 15 yards down the field and putting your receiver in a position to get another 15 or more yards after that. So over the course of a game and over the course of a season, I think that makes a difference, obviously. Um, and yeah, so I think a lot of it, there's plenty of good things to work with. There's plenty of stuff where you can see flaws in his game, but, um, it, it, all together, you know, that's more than what we have seen from Sermon and Morris, obviously Garbers, because, you know, there's just no data points there. Um, and I think also we should, you mentioned this kind of briefly. I think it should be mentioned anything as Sacramento today is, it's hard to be good at Sacramento State. I mean, they're, when was the last, I mean, they're just not a good program historically. So for him to be able to do anything, even half decent there is, you know, maybe you should inflate his numbers by a little bit if you were on a team like Eastern, say. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I, I agree with everything that you said. Just a couple other notes, just things that I picked up watching or reading about him. Uh, the fact that he's 24 years old is valuable in a sense that it's just extra experience that none of the other guys in our quarterback room have. He was originally mm-hmm. recruited to UNLV, which isn't the most prestigious team in the country, but it's, it certainly shows that he has some underlying talent and he's had like 11 years to grow from that. So if we, we talked about <laughs> yeah. this a lot uh, during the season, you know, playing BYU or playing Utah, like there, there's a lot to be gained in that time. Like you're actually hitting your physical prime instead mm-hmm. of approaching it and just kind of trying to figure out your body. So that's, that's valuable. His brain's almost totally developed for God's sake. Uh, the, another thing yeah. I've noticed, which is kind of odd and awkward and kind of funny, when he has a very strange – he holds the ball very low, and this may be related to the flat-footedness that you mentioned. Yeah. So it, it makes his release look really slow because, like, half of the release is just bringing the ball up to his shoulders so he can <laughs> cock his arm back. Yeah. Um, it's, I mean, it made me think back to – uh, when Jeff Tedford was consulting with the coaching staff because that was always the, the number one thing for Cal quarterbacks would hold their arms kind of like clumsily yeah. high. Uh, yeah, Aaron Rodgers yeah, yeah. still does it, and, and this is the exact opposite of it. Um, another thing you mentioned, the mobility. Uh, it seems to me like he kind of has functional mobility from what I saw. It's not, it doesn't have game-breaking speed. He isn't all that elusive, but he sees an opening pretty well and gets from point A to point B, which is great. And he doesn't, from what I've seen, take a bunch of really big hits, uh, which is, I think, a skill, like knowing how to get down at the end of a run and not absorbing a giant, uh, you know, 320-pound defensive lineman flopping on you or something. Yeah, uh, right. Much more likely to stay in the game. And then finally, this is more of a, a meta point about offensive design and the difference between a school like UW and a school like Sacramento State, but it's really hard to tell how much is being asked of a quarterback when you're watching FCS tape. And this goes to the highest levels. I remember watching through the FCS playoffs last year. People have probably heard the name Trey Lance a lot lately. He actually did. He won the Walter Payton Award for North Dakota State last year. They went undefeated, as they typically do. Um, but he's, he's now, like, rising up draft boards, and Mel Kuyper has him as a first-round pick and so on. 
But he, I, I was watching these games last year, particularly in the playoffs. Uh, my parents are season ticket holders, so they, they, I talked to them about North Dakota State. And it seemed like Lance, the offense was designed to give him one route, and if it wasn't there, take off running. And he has the athletic ability to make that work. Lots of play action, and, you know, one option. If it's not there, run. I saw a lot of that in Thompson's tape that I was able to see anyway. It's hard to know how much of that is play calling to the quarterback's strengths, like we don't want you trying to read a defense, how much of it is, or maybe we just think that you're good enough running that that's going to be more valuable than trying to find a second receiver, how much of it is playing to the receiver's ability that we don't want, or the offensive line's ability for how long they can protect the quarterback, and how much of it is just game planning, just general game planning, uh, that you know this is they don't have offensive coordinators who can develop really complex uh, root trees or receivers who can run them. Uh, and, and so you're kind of paring down the playbook to do something more simple. It's hard to tell if that's going to translate, but if he's doing the kind of like one option and then take off thing here, that's probably not going to work very well. Uh, you need a more diverse uh, attack, more diverse playbook. Uh, you know, for everything we've heard from Jimmy Lake, so far, is the goal is to be more NFL-like, which means a lot more than one option before you take off running. And if we're going to maximize what we get out of that, it's going to have to be a, a, a more mature, more developed playbook. And hopefully he can um, you know, make that work for him. I don't know if that's something that uh, you picked up on at all, but it, it just kind of stood out to me. as like, I don't know if he's good at reading a defense or not. Yeah, there was definitely moments that I, I picked up on on that, too. There was... It was interesting because it seemed like to me there was some moments where I thought his eyes, like his usage of his eyes was actually pretty decent um, and going, you know, to his second or third reads. And then there were other times where it was more like what you said, where it was, okay, that's covered. Eh, I might as well run. Um, and, I, yeah, I think I think you're right that it is really hard to tell um, what how much of that is by design and how much isn't. Um, but... Yeah, I think his, his running is really interesting, though, simply because, like you said, he's not necessarily super elusive, um, and I noticed that as well. Like, he's he's mobile and, yeah, like, functional mobility, like you said, but there's um, – I remember a couple times, a couple runs that I saw where, you know, you're looking at it, and it's, it's uh, you know, it's much better than how many quarterbacks would be, but then you also see, okay, if you were just that much better of a runner, you would have – taken this uh you know altered your angle by you know say three degrees and you could have busted off for another 10 10 yards or 15 Mm -hmm. yards or something um but yeah i i I think you pretty much nailed it right there you know we can't can't exactly know um and it's just a matter of being able to see him in in john donovan's offense that will tell us yeah or on on a zoom call on john donovan's computer that'll help yeah um so zooming out a little bit, speaking of zooming, um, zooming out a little bit from uh, just Thompson himself, where do you right now, both in, in go two directions on the quarterback room, what do you think is most likely to happen in terms of the depth chart, and what would you personally like, you may have tipped your hand a little bit on this uh, a minute ago with the comments about Sermon, but what would you like to see happen with the quarterback room? Yeah, um, I think it's so easy. The thing, as a fan, it's so easy to root for a guy like Sermon, um, for his skill set, I should say. I don't know what he's like as a person. Uh, but it's so easy to root for that skill set simply because we you can daydream about the options that that opens up with the offense is uh, 
it, you know, that's such a luxury. And, 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 yeah, I mean, that's all I really have to say. But it's also kind of one of those things where it's, if you're quote unquote rooting for it, you know, we, if he doesn't, if he doesn't have it together, if he's going to throw three picks a game, it doesn't really matter. So, because I don't know whether or not he, uh, has it together. I hate using, I hate saying quote unquote, it sounds so lame, but <laughs> I don't know that. I, I, I can't, it's hard to root really. Um, I guess if I have to root for one thing, it would be that, um, I hope that Jacob Sermon has improved his accuracy and has, uh, and decision making and kicks ass and blah, blah, blah. Um, if not, I, I if if not, I think it's probably pretty evenly split between Morris and Thompson. Um, but but I I won't. I'm kind of just interested as a to be a kind of almost a neutral observer in this for this quarterback competition um, because all of those three options uh, and Ethan Garbers, you know, if we're throwing him in there, they're all quite different. Um, and I think, ironically, I think Garbers, if this were a year from now, I think he would be the most interesting pro- uh, prospect of those four. Because to me, to me, um, to me, Kevin Thompson almost feels like a poor man's older version of Ethan Garbers. Yeah. Um, you mean Chase Garbers? Wait, no. <laughs> Chase Garbers, <laughs> Ethan Garbers, you know, pick one. Um, yeah. But yes, I almost wish that I'm like, can this just be a year from now? Of course, and then you get Sam Heward in, involved, and that's a whole different story. But but um, were Sam Heward not a factor, I would almost want this to be a year from now, just because I think he is a really interesting interesting prospect compared to the other three. Um, but I would, you know, I think it's quite squarely between between um, the three between Morris, Sermon, and, and Thompson. Um, and I should, I think I, I speak for all of us that if if Sermon has the intangibles down and his decision-making down, I think there's no way that the other two could win it, really. But if he doesn't, I think there's no way that he can win it. So it really, I think, hinges all on him. That's, a, that's well said. I, I find myself, with my own predisposition, uh, favoring the accurate uh, Brady quarterback yeah. over the big armed guy, uh, which I, I mean, I don't think that's necessarily all that popular. Like I, I will, I would yeah, take probably Jake Browning's season, senior season over Jacob Easton's only season, although they were basically the same thing. Um, statistically, I, I just, it's, I'd rather watch an accurate quarterback kind of break, break down defense than just watch Joe Flacco throw the ball 60 yards and try to get a uh, pass interference penalty over and over. Um, So I guess in a way that makes me predisposed to Dylan Morris in this competition, although I don't know. We haven't seen any of these guys play against college defenses for a meaningful amount of time, so it's hard to tell which ones, which of the group of the four really has the most, uh, the best decision-making and the ability to break down a defense analytically. So it's hard to really make a judgment on that. And then another layer of uncertainty is the offense itself and what the coaching staff wants out of its quarterback. Because if there was one area where Chris Peterson exerted the most control, it was definitely over the quarterback development offensive philosophy. And that's out the window now. And not only is that out the window, but the offensive coordinator that he groomed is also gone. So there's a lot of uncertainty about what the coaching staff wants 
and then which quarterback actually has what the – we don't know what they want, and we don't know yeah. who has the various skills that could fulfill that uh, hole. So uh, we've got a lot left to learn, and I, I totally agree with what you said. It's going to be fun to be uh, kind of a neutral bystander and see how this develops. But I, I think you, you landed in uh, an astute place in saying that Sermon ultimately probably controls his own destiny because, you know, no matter what you you what a, a lifelong football person would like to say about being open minded, it's every offensive coordinator is going to want that physical talent to play with and and think that they're going to be the ones who unlock the ability, which is why you know Jacob Eason just is <laughs> just still getting drafted relatively high in the NFL and so on. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I, I I think that'll be interesting to watch. I don't know if I really have a favorite in the race, but I, I agree with you that it'll be fun to see how it plays out. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back on the other side of a couple ads. We're going to talk a little bit about the recruiting landscape and what has happened and what is still to come for UW over the rest of the summer. Thank you for listening to our brief commercial break. We're going to talk a little bit about recruiting. It's been uh, a little bit of a, a more eventful past week and a half, two weeks after what seemed like a pretty interminable lull, which is the same thing that happens every year for some reason. I, I mean, I guess there are very clearly uh, explicable reasons for why the Huskies seem to get a slow start uh, with recruiting every year because they want to do as many in-person visits as possible, which is exacerbated by the lack of in-person visits this year. They still have managed to put together a bit of a class, uh, particularly on the defensive side. But I want to talk a little bit about the offensive class first. Um, Sam Heward is in. You mentioned him earlier. Five-star recruit quarterback is locked down, has been for a year and a half. Uh, the Huskies missed out to Oregon on Troy Franklin and tight end Mataveo, uh, at least for now. It's always possible that these things get opened back up if the landscape changes, if they can start doing in-person visits. Lots of spots still to fill. Uh, Going to need at least a one running back, another tight end, a receiver or two, probably another offensive lineman, maybe two. Uh, how are you feeling about the offensive recruiting so far? Is there anything, any names that you kind of have circled as must-gets over the next couple months or into the season? Yeah, um, I mean, kind of, you know, I think I think we're all kind of antsy at this point. Um, and I, yeah, I, on one hand, I'm like, okay, we're antsy every spring. On the other, not every spring, there is a global pandemic and we have a new head coach um, and offensive coordinator, so... Uh, it's like there's just one huge constant with the spring, and then there's these things that are like the least constant variables you could possibly drum up. Um, and so for that, for that, the latter reason, I'm not, I'm not going, I'm not approaching this as a fan thinking, oh, this is just going to be the same as every single year. It's going to go bad. We're going to crush it at the end, and blah blah blah. Um, and then we'll all make fun of ourselves for freaking out at the beginning because there is a pretty high likelihood that that's not going to happen. Um, especially just because, uh, you know, we don't know if when the season is going to happen, if it's going to happen, what it's going to look like. And so the things that UW kind of, uh, really uses to sell itself, all of that's taken away. And I mean, I mean, it's harder for every school to recruit during COVID, but I think based on, um, based on everyone's different strategies and what they look for and just how they conduct business, um, and how they sell themselves, it obviously is disproportionate in some ways. Um, I don't think I'm being really all that 
um, saying anything all that new to agree that it probably hits UW disproportionately. Um, and I, I think to me, obviously the, besides Amika and I mean, JT's defense, but you know, still the recruits that, that it, it will be frustrating to me if the in-state recruits like Owen Prentice, um, Tanaya and Alexander, you know, they might be looking elsewhere. Um, and Jillian Simon already committed to USC. I am not going to freak out and, you know, be like, oh, you have to burn the program down if we don't, because <laughs> I understand how that everything is kind of crazy right now. And, um, you know, but, but if, if there's a huge exodus of kids from the end state, um, Owen Prentice to me is the big one. Um, and I've heard rumors that he's leading Stanford right now. Uh, you know, who knows that could change, but, but, um, that would be, that would be just a really, that would be a downer. Um, it's yeah. my, yeah. my main, my main, uh, perspective right now. Yeah, I think this probably applies on offense and defense that there are a lot of spots where it's kind of like if you get – there are a couple guys who kind of do similar things like Ibuka and uh, Franklin or defensively we're looking at Simon and Will Leitu. Uh And there are a couple other spots like this too. Uh, but it, it kind of felt like, well, if you don't get the first one, you're still okay if you get the second one. If you get them both – you're killing it, but you can still have a great class if you get one or the other. And we've missed on, like, the first of the two on some of these spots where it's kind of now, like, we're still doing okay, but we really need to sew up the backup plans. Or even some of them are plan A, we're yeah. plan B's out the window. Um, and, and I think, you know, we could still have a phenomenal class. Everything you said is right about um, how UW is probably – hurt more because of the lack of in-person visits and that's not uh that's not whining that's something that UW is responsible for you know I I, th- I don't think that you were saying totally. it was like go oh, for us oh uh, no yeah no that's, definitely yeah that's part of part of how they've designed the recruiting program and this, it was you know they didn't have a great backup plan and when uh they lost their a big recruiting tool of getting in-person visits and convincing the families that this is a place where you can develop as a human being uh, by having an in-person face-to-face connection. If that's going to, you're going to put all your eggs in that basket. You you can't really have the basket get infected with a deadly pandemic or whatever. (laughs) Uh, And that's kind of what happened. So uh, now the pressure's on. And and if they lose out on Franklin and Igbuka and, JTT and I mean now Lacey's committed to that at least saves that one piece but they add Prentice to that list it could get pretty ugly uh, particularly with how some of the rest of the conference has been recruiting and there's you know it's, it's a one-year thing it's a new coach it's a new offensive coordinator nobody's seen the system it's hard to forecast what the fall is going to look like they're going to be breaking in a new running back a new quarterback it's just a lot a lot of things are changing so uh you can't you know, make definitive judgments yet, but it's it's definitely not going to put them at an advantage uh, if they can't you know kind of build on this recruiting class and at least get it up to kind of like B plus level. You know, if it's if it's probably not going to end up with the A plus class, that's fine. Uh, maybe not even the solid A A minus that we've had the last couple of years, uh, but there's you know still a good chance of getting into that B plus range. But it could also get a lot worse, and I think that's what we have to you know be worried about because even that one class could kind of signal the start of like Peterson's gone 
Browning and Gaskin are gone. This is not the college football playoff contender, uh, you know, conference champion, two-time conference champion UW team. We're kind of back in the more like an eight and four type of seven and six, seven and five type of team. Uh, you know, God forbid, but that's that. There's a risk of that if they if these kind of dominoes start falling in a bad way. Um, yeah, that's I, yeah. Oh, sorry. I was just gonna no. say I. Um, the one thing that for me is a saving grace is um, knowing that Jimmy Lake is Jimmy Lake as a first-time head coach um, and as somebody who's had huge success in his you know in his previous positions. I trust him that whatever happens this cycle and this year, um, I, I more than a lot of coaches, I trust him to learn and adapt because um, that's really the biggest part about becoming a- anything for the first time, frankly, uh, <laughs> whether that's in football or in any other profession or like any life thing. Um, and so that I, I will be interested to see whatever happens this year in recruiting and on the field. I'm not going to assume, oh, this is Jimmy Lakin's final form. Um, I, so that's something that to me is just really interesting, not even as a fan, just as somebody who's watching a thing unfold. Um, and the other thing is that because the last few years of recruiting have, especially, you know, 2020, 2019, 2018, I mean, those were significant classes. Um, that's some talent level where if you're good on the field, like if your coaches are doing their shit, that you should be able to get a lot out of that. Um, and I think that, you know, if, if they do with these this talent level what they potentially could, I think a lot of our recruiting worries could go away. And I think a lot of the recruiting worries um, is that, you know, we don't have anything on the field to sell ourselves on right now because who knows if there's going to be a season. Um, we also don't have anything on the field from spring practice to distract us and make us think, oh, things are – there's, like, here's these players that look good, you know. Um, so I think the – I'm reminding myself that the natural worry that comes from the recruiting looking like it's not at the same level as 2018, 2019, and 2020, um, I'm reminding myself that it looks a lot worse than it is in the whole scheme of what a football coach's job is right now, simply because there's nothing else going on. Um, and <laughs> yeah. yeah, and with, everything with, is with the, yeah. yeah, everything is magnified. Um, and I think if, there's a if this and this is a big if since it is his first time as a head coach um if they play like they could with the talent that they have um you know which we're mainly looking at quarterback which now we know is a much higher floor with Thompson um receivers which with Puka Trelbinum um you know maybe Marcus Spiker maybe Ty Jones if he comes back and is you know, the same or better. That those are guys I trust. I trust the running backs group, running backs uh, room, and I'm cautiously optimistic on the offensive line too. Um, given the depth and talent combination that we have there, even though we graduate Trey Adams um, and Nick Harris and etc. Um, so I'm and Jared Hilbers. I shouldn't. So so you look at it as a whole, and even though there is a lot of change. It's and there's not a lot of super flashy recruiting momentum, etc. Um, 
I still look at it and it's not like this is a program in a situation where, or in a state that is, uh, overly, it's still in a really, really good position when you look at the talent. Um, when you look at the, um, status of the different units on the field. So if they do what they do, you know, there's, yeah, that's well said. Yeah. Because and and I think to put a, a, a fine point on that, the two best recruiting classes of the Chris Peterson era were 2019 and 2020, and it wasn't close. And those mm-hmm. players are now, uh, you know, redshirt freshmen and redshirt sophomores and sophomores and freshmen. Um, so that they're going to start having more of an impact on the program. We've seen almost none of them on the field so far. So the the most yeah. talented team that we've seen at UW in 20 years just in terms of recruited talent is probably mm-hmm. going to be the one we see over the next couple seasons. Uh, so that, that is extremely promising. And and there's also a practical element to the, the challenges of being a first time head head coach, which is you and the new staff members you bring in, namely Donovan and Durham Cato ha- don't have a relationship with the local coaches. You haven't built uh, a recruiting pipeline, you know, it, you, coaches are recruiting players for like three years before they commit at this point. So you're coming mm-hmm. in behind the game. So I, I think you, you, I'm, I'm usually the uh, very kind of like sanguine and, and not a uh, panicky one. There's at least that nagging thought in the back of my head, but I think you've talked me off that ledge that, you know, even if this recruiting class does go up in flames and we end up with the like D plus recruiting class for Sam Hewitt is really the, the one saving grace we're still going to be all right because there's a base of talent and there's an opportunity to grow from it. So I, I think that's uh, very well said. With that in mind, uh, does it worry you at all that it seems like uh, Oregon is having a really strong class again this year? They're putting together, you know, I think it's kind of been neck and neck between UW and Oregon as the best recruiting teams in the Pac-12 over the last, basically since Cristobal got, took over at Oregon. Um Seems like they're they're putting together an even stronger class this year, and then USC is totally resurgent for reasons that are completely uh, that boggle my mind because it's not like Clay Helton became a good coach in the last six months. Um, what do you think of those two teams where they are in terms of their recruiting right now, and does that give you any additional concern? Yeah, totally. I think it would be insane. I think any Washington fan that's like that. Isn't concerned about that, or that says like, "Oh, it's fine, whatever." I think is either very, very naive or um, insane. But um, yeah, the, yeah, there's really no other way to put it. I think the thing that worries me most is USC. I think um, Oregon. Well, it, it really depends. There's there's kind of different angles. The thing that I think I think maybe I shouldn't say USC worries me the most. USC confounds me the most. And then being so confused about that scenario, like why are you guys you couldn't recruit very well for the last two years and you're still the same coaching staff and Clay Helton's mediocre at best. So why do people want to go there all of a sudden? That that is um, a lot to take in Washington simply because I mean if USC gets that recruiting momentum with such a huge talent base down there where recruits in Southern California are all of a sudden feeling like, okay, the thing to do is to go back to USC, even if USC is garbage on the field. Um, it, that takes away so much from 
um, UW's recruiting base. Whereas if Oregon, you know, if they continue to recruit like they have, um, they're still at a pretty even, you know, I think the aggregate advantages and disadvantages for Oregon and UW recruiting Southern California and just to a lesser extent the Bay Area um, with the talent that they have there. I think, you know, I think they're pretty even. It's just about who, um, you know, who, uh, which coaches can do their jobs better pretty much, um, both for recruiting and on the field. Uh, so I think it's easier if you're UW to work against Oregon than it is against USC. Like, there's – if USC is back, quote-unquote, which we know they aren't because they still have Clay <laughs> as their coach, um, <laughs> but it's not even if they're back. It's if they can convince recruits they're back, which is a totally different thing. Like, those are com- – that's not even the same Venn diagram. Those are two different – totally separate circles um so when they're doing that then they're pretty much just wasting talent and that's talent that at UW or Oregon could actually you know do something um and then once that happens and you get all these kids from Washington who are also seeing that because there's a huge talent base on the west coast is in California if they're seeing that the destination isn't Washington then that opens up the floodgates for them to go elsewhere, whether that is USC, Oregon, or the SEC, or Big Ten, or whatever. So I think there's those kind of domino effect that USC convincing recruits, either being back, which they're not, or convincing recruits that they're back, um, that opens up a whole load of problems, um, both in the short and long term. Yeah, I think that makes sense in terms of Oregon and USC, if they are, if they do become national contenders, if not national champions, uh, it, it in a sense, it does help the conference at a time when the conference needs an improvement in its reputation to the rest of the country. Uh, but I, I dislike Oregon to such a degree that I don't think I, I want the conference to have an improved reputation if Oregon being a perennial national contender is what that takes. I think I could probably kind of grind my teeth and bear it if USC being at that level is what it takes. Like if USC and Washington are both – uh, perennial top 10 or 15 teams, and that's what restores uh, nationwide respect for the conference. I can probably live with that. But it, like you were saying, it's so weird that not only is Clay Helton still there and recruits seem to be believing that the team is back, but it was worries about Clay Helton losing his job that seemingly made recruits not commit there in the last two cycles. What changed? It's so bizarre. They now have a new athletic director. I think he's in more jeopardy than he was before. Uh yeah, it's very strange to me. I don't understand it, but it does seem like they're at least re-engaging uh, the talent base that they have, and they could be very good again in a year or two. Yeah, I have. I I wish I could answer that. I can't. I have no. I I have no. It just seems, especially when you think about the fact, like for someone like me who's a millennial, and I, yeah, you're a millennial too, uh, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 Who like we grew up watching, or I grew up. I guess you were a little bit older watching USC absolutely destroy people, and yeah, so in yeah. my mind, it makes sense. Like I would never choose USC because it's not Washington, but it makes sense to me if you're of our generation that you'd be like, oh, I want to go to USC because they're USC. But now you do the math on when these kids were born. And I'm like, oh, you've never seen USC be truly good. Maybe you have as a very, very small child, but you probably have zero memory of it or very little memory of it. Um, there's none of that mythology in your brain. If anything, you know, the Oregon thing makes sense to me, having a little bit of a surge in recruiting because there is that mythology in their brains based on their memories of that. But 
that's what makes it all the more confusing to me is it's not even at this point, it's not their firsthand experience of USC being so great. It's like tertiarily, they're like, yeah, I think that's how you, if you are 18 or 17 or 16 now, that you've never experienced USC being truly great and you're going there based on kind of this lore. Um, yeah. It's like being yeah. wistful for the Matt Fink era. It's like get back to yeah. those glory days. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I guess somehow teams do turn around from time to time, although I never totally understand why. Let's uh, put a bow on the recruiting talk. I think that turned into a, a pretty interesting discussion, I believe, uh, and move to our final segment, which is our recommendations or plugs. Is that we've had a lot of time to not watch sports. I still ended up watching a whole bunch of old stuff like 1950s World Series games, which is kind of bizarre. Uh, but, Gaby, are there non-sports, non-football-related things that you have um, – experience taken in, watched, listened to, or anything that you would recommend? Yeah. Um, I think – stop me if I mentioned this the last time. No, I don't think I did because I think I finished it um, before after our last podcast because that was 100 years ago. Um, but I finally finished – I started this book like a year ago, and then I got to within 50 pages of finishing it. I got distracted, and then I didn't pick it up until – like three weeks ago and then I finished it in like two days. Um, but a gentleman in Moscow, um, if you haven't read that, um, it's just a delightful, like a really delightful book, uh, which it takes pretty much. It's this guy's life from the time he's like 30 till, I don't know, 70, no, 25 till 60 or something, 60 something. Um, and it takes place in the almost entirely in the hotel metropole in Moscow because um, he has been sentenced to a house arrest there for the rest of his life. Um, and it's a it's both really just an interesting um, look at uh, the 20s through the I think mid 50s um, in the you know Soviet era. And uh, just also I think what it really does though is it's it's a really, really um, endearing, development and creation of characters and so i think to, and and because you get to follow it you know over the course of 30 years i think you get very attached to these people that it, it feels almost like if a pixar movie were a book but also for adults <laughs> in in their in their development of characters all that so that's good also i read station 11 which i remember you said you read and oh yes yeah. that was a good one yeah um, and with strange echoes of the present. Um, yeah, a couple. I, I feel like I've, I've read and watched a lot of things that are pretty good and not a lot of things that I've loved. One thing I did love was a book called Department of Speculation. I think I've recommended something by this author, Jenny Ofel, before, uh, O-F-F-I-L. It might be pronounced awful, but I, I, if I, that were my name, I would I choose not. to pronounce it differently. I'd be like, ah, oh, we don't use the phonetic pronunciation. We have – it's just an old family thing. We use a hard O. It's full bear. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. Uh, it's but it's a it's very strange book about this, uh, like a first person account of this woman um, having her first child and the kind of the long term degradation of her relationship with her husband and uh, living in in New York and it's 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 short book it's probably two hundred pages you can get through it in a couple nights but it's 
very, very well written. And there's so many like sentences in there where I, I highlighted them and like read them back to my wife later because they were just like, oh man, that was that was very well said. That was very you relatable. Like, did you then read it back to your wife and you're like, let's be sure to not do this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, uh, yeah. There were parts about. Uh, there was one line I remember, which was something that we had talked about when our daughter was a newborn. Uh, she made some comment about uh, how she met a woman on, on the subway while her daughter was napping on her. And she's like, oh, she's sleeping like a baby. And she wanted to uh, follow that woman <laughs> home and lay next to her at night and scream at the top of her lungs for four straight hours and be like, yes, yeah, sleeping <laughs> like a baby. <laughs> yeah, we've talked about that. Sleeping like a baby. Terrible description. Uh, but that's probably – yeah. Number one thing I would recommend for last couple weeks. Well, yeah, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. I'm sure there is. I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> there aren't any movies. I watched King of Staten Island. It was fine. It was a, a Judd Apatow movie. I called it a bromantic comedy because it's about uh, kind of like a burgeoning um, father-son relationship between Pete mm-hmm. Davidson and Bill Burr. It's kind of funny. It's kind of a little too schmaltzy like every other Judd Apatow movie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Rewatching Breaking Bad, halfway through that, still great. <laughs> you know what is is lovely? Um, just as far as you know, if you want, if you're listening to this and you're like, "Oh man, I don't like having uh, the world being on fire. That sucks." Um, and you want something that's just like, just nice and lowers your blood pressure. Um, I I've rediscovered watching uh, Good Eats with Alton Brown. And it's so dorky. And there's some more dorkiness that I think just is calming. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, that's my version of that, as we were talking about before we started recording, is Guy's Grocery Games, which is just like it's hard to feel bad when you watch that show. It's, it's dumb. You don't feel smarter. You don't feel, like, intellectually uh, advanced. But it's, it's very calming and reassuring. I, a friend of mine described it as – like if Earth ended and there were some uh, like uh, you know remnants of human society that aliens discovered in several hundred years and they had to go back to their planet and explain what a cooking show was, they might get guys grocery games. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. And with, yeah. Oh, go. You go. I was gonna say, I, I, well, if you have anything left, I was just gonna wrap it up. Oh no, I was just gonna say the thing with the one great thing about Good Eats besides everything is that you do learn a lot. Like. I've, I've, I consider myself a, quite a, a quite a good cook, but you learn a lot about just like science and fun stuff that you're like, oh, I can apply concepts to things and make things good and the end. So yeah, I, I, that I, as opposed to guys' grocery games. Yeah, that doesn't teach you anything. But I did. I read yeah. salt, fat, acid, heat uh, a while ago and got. A, I had a similar reaction to that. I was like, oh, you can actually like learn things about cooking, not just. Read a recipe. It works great. Oh, I hate um, recipes. That's a whole – I could do yeah, an hour-long yeah. well, podcast. It's a starting. Yeah. yeah. I think most of our listenership is like – correct me if I'm wrong, listeners, but I think most of you guys are like middle-aged men who maybe have uh, varying degrees of interest in cooking, so I won't, I won't spend an hour <laughs> talking about my disdain for recipes and how much – I like just throwing things in pots and being like, let's see what happens, and then learning on the way. But uh, it's, a, it's yeah. a mix of middle-aged men and, and the K-pop stands, uh, yes. a big part of the audience as well, but, who are much more interested and, in cooking. So, yeah. Yeah. And with, with that my in one mind, comedian friend who I think listens to this. <laughs>
Uh, so, well, hello to the comedian friend. And Hi, Mona. Join, <laughs> join us next week uh, when we're going to do the, or maybe not next week, maybe next month. We talk about uh, Gaby's hatred of recipes for an entire hour, mm-hmm. and we'll have nothing else on the rundown. And maybe Cody Pickle okay. will be here to talk about recipes with us. We're maybe. getting ever closer to that uh, inevitability. You can talk about traditional uh, Idaho cooking. It's just potatoes. There's, no, there's nothing else. Washington makes it's, more potatoes than Idaho, man. We need to step up. Not per capita. It's, yeah. It'll just be him uh, doing the Bubba Gump thing about potatoes, like baked potatoes, fried potatoes, hashed potatoes. We're fading, we're fading out, right, Rob? <laughs> no, that's my hill that I'll die on, is that uh, – is that Washington needs to? I'm I'm pissed off that Idaho takes credit for all the potatoes, and I'm like, we grow more potatoes than you, you bastards. <laughs> if Rob doesn't well, fade we, us we, out, if we keep going. Then if people have to listen to this, if you're still listening to this, and Rob hasn't faded us out yet, I'm so sorry. I I, I would never do this to you on purpose. Um, just it's then gave me some, um, some potato emojis on uh, Twitter. Yes. I will wait. Oh, they want me to send. No, you want me to. No, you want them to. Potatoes. If anybody listened this far, they can send you potato emojis on Twitter to prove that they stuck with the, the potato rant.